This podcast is a ministry of Christian Life Center in Berwyn, Illinois. Our goal is to create a real faith for the real world, and we hope this helps you grow. For more information at Christian Life Center, visit us at our website, www.berwynag.org. Thank you. You have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. The book of Acts, the ninth chapter. Ninth chapter of Acts is found right before the tenth chapter of Acts. This is just me stalling while I'm trying to get myself all hooked up. Okay. Acts chapter 9. And uh, we're talking tonight about the making of a servant. And should be a great, uh, should be a great message, except that I'm preaching it. No, it should be a good, good message, and the Lord has something to say to us here. Um, doulos is the word there uh, that we were just had on screen, and that doulos is the Greek word for servant, and the Apostle Paul refers to himself as doulos, not, all the, not in every epistle, but many times in the epistles he calls himself doulos. Doulos is the term for uh, a household servant, a slave, a person who is a bond servant, a person who is a, a is a, is a working uh, in in a house, uh, and so that that person, and that's how Paul describes himself as a servant of Christ. And so we're going to look at how Paul came to the Lord, and take a look at this passage of scripture, really well known passage of scripture in Acts chapter nine. Uh, really, that, that passage of Scripture, but I think as we examine it, we'll see some things and we'll draw some theology in from, from other places where Paul is, is, uh, has, has ministered and, and is, is sharing the Word. So, uh, so we're here, and we're, we're doing the doulos here. So, uh, Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. This is probably a passage of Scripture, like I said, you've heard before, but... Uh, Anyway, literally, uh, this, this is, is about how to make a, a servant of the Lord, and we're going to see it at play in a couple different lives here. Meanwhile, it says, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might have, take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They, could, they heard the sound but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. 
And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is a chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength, and Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. So how do you make a servant of the Lord? It takes one to make one. How do you make a servant of the Lord? There has to be someone else involved. So we start the story out here. Saul, according to the first verse, is breathing out murderous threats. Sounds pretty negative, right? Uh, sounds pretty negative. He is breathing out murderous threats. He is after, uh, he's trying to, to bring the, this whole, uh, this whole uh, cult, that he, what he considers a cult, down. And so by now the Christian church is called the way. It's, uh, you know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so Christianity by this time is known as the way. Uh, in, a, in a little bit later, it'll be called Christianity. It'll be called, uh, the, the disciples will be called Christians. But up until now, they're just called followers of the way. And so uh, they're sort of a subcult of Judaism, but Saul sees that as a her heresy that needs to be stamped out. It can't be something that, that continues on. And so he, he sees this, and so we see that he is violent. We, we, we are first introduced to Saul. If you have your Bible in, in the book of Acts, just turn back a couple pages to back to the last verses of the book, of, or of last verses of Acts chapter 7. And you read this. It says, but when they heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So that's the very first time we're introduced to Saul in the scripture. In chapter 7, the last few verses there in chapter 7, we're introduced to Saul, the person at whose feet they laid these clothes. Now, Paul was more than just the keeper of their garments. When they were going to stone Stephen, who they believed was a part of this heretical sect called the Way, they... they they grabbed these stones and they, they had to take off their outer, outer garment to get a good throw of a stone. You want to kill somebody with a stone, you got to get a, you got to get a good chunk on that stone. So they, they, and they laid those at Saul's feet, which is a, is a testament to the fact that it was Saul who was the witness uh, in, in this against Stephen. So by laying those, those things at his feet, they're saying, we're going to do this based upon your testimony, and so this all falls on you, Saul. And he has no problem with that. He doesn't find that to be strange or aberrant. He, he believes that it's okay to kill Christians. He is a Christian killer. This is why Paul later on says that he is the chiefest among sinners. 
This is why he, Paul almost lived, I wouldn't say he had guilt, but Paul lived with a very keen recollection that grace had snatched him and turned him completely around, as we see here in Acts chapter 9. So, and so uh, uh, Saul is, is, the, is recognizing that, that uh, th this is a group that needs to be stamped out. So in chapter 9, verse 1, it says that he is still breathing out murderous threats. In other words, he's the one and only, maybe not the only, but the one who is the most uh, damaging uh, persecutor of the church. He's the one who has this great uh, uh, zeal to stamp out the, 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 uh, the new Christians, these new believers. He, he wants to stamp them out. He wants to arrest them. So he asks, if you can get this, he asks the, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, would it be okay if you give me some letters so I can leave the country and go to a different country, Damascus, which is 140 miles away, if I can go 140 miles away and check out their synagogues over there to find out if they have any of these heretics, that I, and I can grab them, and with these letters, I can arrest them from this other country you know, and, and bring them back to Jerusalem where we can you know, hold them a tribunal against them. And so the Jewish leadership obviously is recognizing that there is a great threat against Judaism, and part of it is that the Spirit hasn't been moving in Judaism for 400 years. And part of it is that, that Jesus has already proclaimed that the olive tree is dead, that there's no fruit on the olive tree, that the, the nation of Israel is, is, uh, is no longer having favored status with, the, with God. In fact, in just a few years, the, the Romans will surround the temple and tear it down stone upon stone, tear it down completely and, and fulfill the prophecy of Jesus. So... So here in this moment, uh, uh, Saul and the people in, of the leaders of, of Judaism believe that there's a great threat against their faith, and that, faith, that, that threat is this sect, the way, which we know as Christianity. So there's a religiously violent history that he has on him, right? This history of abuse. He is completely zealous. He thinks he's doing God's work, as most people who are kind of deceived and deluded in their, in their faith, the, the zealots, they, they, they think they're doing God's work. That clearly there's a perceived threat for, the, church, for the, uh, uh, the Jewish people. And nothing makes the religious spirit more aggravated than not allowing them to just go along their merry way, but stirring things up. That's what stirs up a religious spirit. So we see Saul... Uh, introduced to us here, and he's, he's mo moving on. Suddenly, suddenly, as he's walking, Jesus appears to him and knocks him to the ground, and as he's on the ground, he's knocked to the ground, and Jesus begins to speak to Saul. Now, Saul is traveling with a little entourage, and the people in his entourage, they don't see, uh, or but they hear a voice, but they don't see any, anybody there, but Saul clearly sees someone, and he begins to engage that one in conversation. So just imagine what that looks like. You're walking with your friend. You're walking down Lakeshore Drive, let's say, out for a walk along the lakefront. Suddenly your friend falls to the ground, and uh, a perfectly logical person, your friend, has been up until this point, falls to the ground to their knees and begins to talk to someone who is not there. 
at least as far as you know. And you hear a, a sound coming back, you can't understand it. We find out later that they couldn't understand that. There was no, they could hear it, but they couldn't understand it. And so they hear, oh, 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 to come, coming back to Saul, but Saul is engaging in this conversation with this invisible person. So now you're beginning to wonder about your friend here. And, and, and Saul, knocked to the ground now, is, is completely uh, knocked, knocked to the ground and, and is engaging in the conversation. And the, and the voice says to him, Saul, why do you persecute me? So we have to back up for a second and say, who is it that Saul is, and this is kind of a blessing to hear this as a believer, who is it that Saul is persecuting? He is persecuting the church. But Jesus personally shows up and Jesus comes and says to, the, says to them, listen, says to Saul, listen, you're persecuting me. In other words, Jesus makes a full identification with his body, with the believers there. He says, when you persecute them, you're persecuting me. When you do something against them, you're do, doing something against me. Why do you do that? Now, up until this point, I'm sure Saul had good reasons, good theological reasons why he, he, had, why he was a persecutor of the church. Why was he persecuting Jesus? Why was he persecuting the followers of Jesus? But he uh, hems and haws and can't come up with an answer there because he's talking to the resurrected Lord. Think about the things that Saul must have said to people that he arrested from the synagogues who believed in Jesus. He must have said things like, You're just, the disciples just stole his body. You've been deceived. The, this Jesus that you worship, is, this person is dead. He's dead and gone. This, this is not a, this is, he's not a God. He's just a man. And you can imagine him trying to tear down the faith of the believers as he was arresting them. And so now suddenly all those things that he used to say become really vacant and hollow because he's speaking with the resurrected Christ. Come on, that's pretty cool. The resurrected Christ appears to him and begins to speak, and he challenges him, you're persecuting me, why? Why are you persecuting me? And he doesn't have anything to say. And then, then the, apostle say, or the, the, the Lord says to him, listen, what, I, want you to, I want you to get up and go into the town, and you'll, you'll find out what you should do there. And so uh, he's, he's struck blind, so he is temporarily blind. As we know that, that this blindness lasts for three days until he meets Ananias. So how is it, in fact, the irony here is that his blindness is what actually causes him to see Jesus. The fact that he's blind uh, causes him to see Jesus. It also tells us a little something about the glory of God, that if you see, if you see Jesus in his resurrected body, you're likely going to be blind for a while. Right? Because, so all those people say, I just want to see him. Well, you be, might be blind. So maybe maybe want to alter that prayer. Anyway, so he is he is blinded by the presence of Christ, and he is now he is now uh, helplessly being led by the the entourage that once followed him. Now he is following them, and they're bringing him into the town of Damascus. And so uh, all this has to happen to get the attention of Saul, because Saul we we learn from the the words of Jesus here, Saul is going to do something great and powerful for the kingdom of God. Now, this is what we know about Saul. That he was, un, he, was, he, was, uh, he was a traveler. He didn't have any problem going 140 miles. He wasn't taking the Metra. He wasn't driving a car 140 miles. He wasn't, 
He was, wasn't probably even going by donkey. He was probably walking 140 miles. In other words, I'll walk 140 miles to arrest me some Christians. That's how much I hate Christians. I'll walk 140 miles to Damascus to go get some Christians, then march those guys 140 miles back to Jerusalem. That's a severe kind of hate, right? That's a severe, there's something on the inside of there's a zeal on the inside. This guy's no slouch. We find out later from his writings that he is schooled under Gamaliel, one of the chief teachers at the time, that he is steeped in theology, that he knows the scripture, that, he's been, that he takes his faith very seriously. So all this we know about, about the Apostle Paul, who, who, is, who Saul eventually becomes, all this we know about him because he has confesses this, that he was, he was as to righteousness Faultless, that's what he said to the Philippians. He was the Hebrew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That he was, he was faultless. He considered himself completely righteous according to the law. And so because, so he, he lived this impeccable life and was trying to stamp out this heresy that was known as the way. And he's trying to, and suddenly Jesus appears to him. So God does that to get his attention. Then we go to scene two. If this was a play, we would, there would be a little intermission and they would change the scenery and we would go over to Ananias' house, who seems to be like a really nice guy, Ananias. He, he, he seems to be a, like a lovely person. And so he's just praying and suddenly he has a vision. And so it seems like visions are going around in chapter 9. Paul has one and now Ananias has one. Ananias now has a vision and he says, I want you to go lay hands on somebody. And he's a spirit-filled believer. He's not a problem. I'll lay hands on whoever you want me to go lay hands on, God. Who do you want me to go lay hands on? I want you to lay your hands on this fellow named Saul. Saul of Tarsus. Wait a minute, that rings a bell, he says. That rings a bell. He says, I've heard about this guy from many people. Many voices have told me that this guy is a Christian hater. And now you want me to go... And, and lay hands on him. Yes, God says to him. And Ananias still seems to balk a little bit at this. He says, I, you, know, I, I, you know, what you're talking about, Willis? He says, you know, what, what, do you, what, do you, what do you mean, God? You want me to go lay hands on him? He arrests Christians. That's what he does for a living. This is, a, this is, he, he, this is his job, and he loves his job. He arrests Christians. So, so, I, so you, you know, you're sending me out to go... Go minister to this guy. I don't even know where I'm going to find him. Well, I'll give you the address, God says to him. I want you to go to talk. He's in Judas's house over on Straight Street. And so, uh, and he says, I want you to, I want you to, to uh, minister to him and, and lay hands on him. And Ananias is, is hesitant. He's reticent anyway to, to go follow after what the Lord is until what the Lord is asking him to do until the Lord says to him this. He said, I will show him how much he must suffer for the kingdom. Oh, he's going to suffer? Okay, I'll go lay hands on him. Right? I mean, that, that's, in other words, God's got this all already worked out. Plus, really, Ananias is kind of committed because the Lord says to him, he's already seen a vision. Now, it's been three days. He's already seen a vision of a man named Ananias who comes to lay hands on him. So Ananias is kind of in a trick spot here because he's the only Ananias that he knows. And so 
He, he, the vision, I mean, he's already seen the vision that I'm coming to him, and you're giving me the vision to send me to go to him. So I'm kind of stuck. I have to go. I have to be obedient. But that's really the struggle when you're being made. See, God is not just making a man of God, making a servant out of Saul. He's deepening the servanthood of, the, of Ananias. And so he's calling Ananias out of his comfort zone. I think we can safely say going to minister to Saul of Tarsus is out of his comfort zone. And it's, it's safe for us to understand. See, Tarsus, you know where Tarsus is? Tarsus is in, in Turkey. Tars, Tarsus is way up in Turkey. So, so Saul has traveled hither and yon. He is, he's, from, from a, he's a traveler, and he doesn't have any problem arresting Christians. And so, uh, so Ananias is a little hesitant, but God is pushing him to make him be obedient God has committed him. I'm, well, I mean, just think about it. God says to you, wakes you up in a dream, middle of the night tonight, and he says, I've got a mission for you to do your mission. You know, remember Mission Impossible, the old Mission Impossible. Your mission if you decide to accept it. Right? That's what they say. This tape will self-destruct. Right? Your mission if you decide to accept it. Well, so Ananias has, has been given an assignment from God but he has to step out of his comfort zone and he has to go minister to somebody that normally he wouldn't minister to. Not only would he not minister to him, he would hide from that fella. And he would, he would go and he would probably uh, avoid that guy at all costs. And now God says, I want you, instead of avoiding that person, instead of being comfortable, I want you to be completely uncomfortable. I want you to be shaking. I want you to put all your trust in me and I want you to go minister to Saul of Tarsus. By the way, I've given him a vision, and you're the one that comes to, to lay hands on him. Well, he's fully committed. God has pushed him into the corner where now he's the person who has to say yes. But that's what God does to us when he's making us into servants. He, he manipulates the circumstances for us so that we get to the place where we have to choose to be obedient. That's because the blessing of God only comes to us when we step out in obedience. Think about every testimony you've ever heard. Every single testimony you've ever heard. Every single testimony that you've ever heard is basically this. I had a problem. My problem was, was overwhelming. I, I had no way to answer that problem. And then God challenged me to do this, whatever that is. That's, you know, love on somebody, embrace some new theological truth, to, uh, to uh, give more, to stretch themselves in ministry, to whatever it is that God's dealing with in their own. See, God's working out the problems on the inside of the hearts of servants. God is busy doing that in our lives because he's making us into doulos. He's making us into servants of God. So unless we really recognize what God is doing, we'll never really understand that the test that we're going through, in this case, it's the test of obedience. The test of obedience, will we be obedient even in a difficult case? And you think, well, you know, Ananias, we don't know how long, was he a new believer? No, we don't know how long. It doesn't make a difference because you see, no matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, God is always trying to challenge you to be more obedient. You never graduate from obedience. Right? I mean, even if you're, even if you're walking with the Lord, even if you think yourself uh, uh, to be a really good Christian, you never graduate from the need to be fully committed to the Lord, to be 
more earnestly committed. Listen, I've been walking with the Lord for a long time, since I was 18 years old, which, yes, that's a long time. And so I've been walking with the Lord, and there's things I know now that I didn't know back then, and there's things I, I wrestle with, I wrestled with back then that I don't wrestle with at all now. And there's been things that God has set me wonderfully free from, but the one thing I recognize is my flesh never wants to submit to God. And so my flesh is always angling for a way to be disobedient. God tells me, hey, I want you to open your wallet and give that money to that, that fella right there. I start negotiations right away. All my money, God, you know, i got to buy lunch tomorrow. You know, where's that? What about you want me to fast? Okay, I, I could waste away. Look at me, Lord. I begin with my, my machinations trying to change the mind of God. Instead, I need to be more like Ananias, who when I recognize I'm painted in a corner, when I recognize that God is working on me, that he's trying to work on me the work of obedience, which I think he is always working that. He's trying to work on me, trying to make me a servant of the Lord, so that because a servant only has one right. You, as a servant of God, only have one right. That is to know what the master would have you do next. You don't have to know why he wants you to do that. You don't, you don't even have to know whether you're going to die when you go witness to Saul of Tarsus. It could have been that God's will was that you're going to go talk to Saul of Tarsus and he's going to kill you too, just like he killed Stephen. It could have been that. You have, to, you have to come completely to the end of yourself if you're going to be a servant of God. If you're going to be made into the man and the, or the woman of God, if you're going to be made into that servant, you have to come to the place that you will be obedient to God no matter what he asks you to do. How many would say, I'm not there yet? Raise your hand, but just by the significance of, I'm not there. I'm not to the place where I will do anything that he asks me. I sometimes get to the point where God will say, give me some direction. I'll say, but why? You know, like a two-year-old. But why? But why? But why? Wouldn't it be better if we did this? You know, I'm on your team, God. I'll, you know, I'll do. Ananias, I want you to go witness to Saul of Tarsus. That's, tough. That's a tough thing to do. I want you to go and I want you to lay hands on him and I want you to, I want you to pray for him so that he can be healed. Now, now, Ananias actually adds something to the thing, really. Pray that he will be healed and I will show him that how much he must suffer for the kingdom's sake. And Ananias, in the process of heading over to pray for Saul, somehow must be moved with compassion a little bit and recognizes that if Saul is going to be this person that, he, that God is going to use him, he's going to be a chosen vessel. That word, I think the NIV says instrument. I don't like that word, but the, the chosen vessel, the chosen instrument. In fact, this is the, exactly the same word when in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4 when the Apostle Paul says, for we have this treasure in earthen vessels. It's exactly the same word there. So God says, I'm going to make you a vessel that's going to minister to the Gentiles. That's what God said to, to uh, Saul. And Saul now, ministering to the Gentiles, says, God, we, we carry the treasure of God in us as a vessels. That's pretty amazing, really. And then he says, 
there's kind of another tie in to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 4 of 2 Corinthians, he says that God, the God of this world has blinded the eyes, blinded the minds of the unbelievers, right? That couldn't be more accurate than, than Saul talking about himself. Saul says, I was persecuting Jesus. I knew Jesus, he says uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, I only knew Jesus after the flesh. Henceforth, I will never look at Jesus the same after the flesh because I recognize who he is. Well, of course, because the Son of the living God stopped you in the middle of your path, knocked you to the ground, poked out your eyes and blinded you temporarily and said, why are you picking on me and my children? Stop it. Knock it off. I will show you something. Go into Damascus. And as they lead him by the hands into Damascus, he goes in there and for three whole days, now we're kind of back on what God is doing in Saul. For three whole days, Saul does not eat. He's fasting. And he is contemplating the last thing he saw. What was the last thing he saw? Jesus, the living Christ. For three days, that visage is burned into his eye. In his mind is the voice of Jesus saying to him, why are you persecuting me? And he's wrestling with this in his mind. This is not just a moment. This is three days of, a, of agony as he's trying to turn this over in his mind. How can I have seen this? How can I? And, and I'm sure he's asking, did you guys hear something? Did you see something? What did you see? What did you hear? I'm sure he's, he's agonizing as he's asking the questions of, of this. And, and so he is now contemplating that the resurrected Christ has come and spoken to him. And then God gives him a vision, which we aren't privy to, but we are told that the vision comes to him. Jesus gives him the vision that Ananias is going to come and lay hands on him. And so he is just waiting, utterly and completely dependent upon God to do a miracle in his life, to change him. Which is the second thing God wants to do if He wants to make you into a servant. Is he wants to make you completely and totally dependent upon Him. A servant is completely and totally dependent upon his master for sustenance. And for orders. And for strength. And for purpose in his life. Everything, if we're going to be real servants of God, if we're going to be real servants of God, then we have to be people who are utterly dependent upon whatever God says to do. And we have to be obedient to step into whatever it is the Lord is doing in our life. Sometimes we, in order to do that, you have to have agendas and plans and comfort and securities. All those things have to be cast away Whenever you're going through something in your life and you feel no longer feel secure and you no longer feel like you know exactly what's going to happen, that's a wonderful moment. Don't think that things are out of kilter. Recognize it for what it is. Recognize it that God may be trying to deliver you from you. Let me, let me say it like this. The, the thing that every Christian must be able to say is, Jesus is Lord. Right? No man can say that except by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is Lord. Not Jesus is somebody else's Lord, but Jesus is my Lord. The only way that I can say that Jesus is my Lord 
is if I'm not my Lord. Right? Nod your head. I can't see. I've got my glasses on, so I just assume you're out there. But you could all be home. You might be eating platas. I don't know. But the, So the idea is that you have to know that you aren't your, aren't your own Lord. And the Lord himself will work in your life to deliver you from you. And he will show you areas that you think have long since fallen, but really they have a little bit of hold on your life, right? Things that you do because you, you do. You, you, maybe you say, well, I lose my temper, but I'm Irish. <laughs> or I'm Mexican. Or I'm German. Or I'm Swedish. Oh, we're all ticked off. That doesn't make any difference what your ethnicity is. That's the flesh, right? But we make a, But see, the Lord says, but now you're Christian. And so now we've got to be working on these fruit of the Spirit in your life, and we've got to be de dealing with you and, and delivering you from your dependence upon the flesh. And the flesh is you, and you need to be delivered from you. That's the way a servant is made. A servant is made. Now, a servant has to be broken. A servant has to be brought to the place of obedience. You say, well, this doesn't sound like what... When I walked the aisle to get saved, it seemed like I was really being sold a different thing. You know? The preacher was saying, you're going to have peace in your life. and you're, Everything's going to be lovely it's going to be butterflies and flowers everywhere you go. You'll suddenly see. Some of that is true. When you come to the Lord, the sun seems to shine a little brighter. The songs sound a little sweeter. You, you find new peace and patience in your life. You have all this wonderful... But that's not the sum total of what it means to be a servant of the living God. If you want to be used of God, you have to recognize that you're going to have to become servant. And in order, You see, God's only got two kinds of people. In his kingdom. God's only got two kinds of people. Servants who are disobedient and servants who are learning to be obedient. If you're not a servant, you're not in the kingdom. So you have to be useful to be in the kingdom of God. The way you're useful is you learn obedience. Now maybe it's, I remember when my pastor was teaching me obedience. This is why people react so much to, to giving because giving is hard for us. Giving money away is hard for us, right? Like just reach in your pocket, pull out your wallet. Now, look how nervous everybody gets. Just, just reach in your pocket, pull out your wallet, right? The stuff in here is holds, holds our heart. The things that are in here hold on to our heart. So when the preacher gets up and says, listen, if you trust the Lord, you'll give him a tenth of everything that the boss just put in there. And you start counting. Well, I don't know if that's true. When I was a young believer, I had to be obedient to that because I wanted everything that the Lord wanted for me. I was fully convinced that God wanted to do something amazing in my life. I knew the only way God could do that is if I was fully embracing. Now, that's not the only thing. It was all kinds of sacrifices. He said, not her, to a girl that I was dating at the time. Not her. 
I said, well, she seems nice. She's a Christian. She, she, you know, she, I had all reasons why I could you know, reasonably attracted to her. We like the same things. We're outdoor people, blah, blah, blah. All these things. I negotiated with God. Lost. He said, that's not what I want for your life. You have to be willing to lay down your agenda. You be willing to lay down your plan. We don't like that. We want to do it our way. Well, listen, Frank Sinatra, you can't do it your way. You have to do it his way. You have to do it God's way. You have to do it Yahweh's way. And so if we recognize that, that's, that's what God is doing in every single person in here's life. The question is whether you're squirming under the thumbprint of God or whether you're trying to be obedient. Now, you will try to be obedient, you will at times fail, but, so you, but like Ananias, you're going to go do it. Ananias has an amazing thing. He, he goes and says, listen, uh, listen Saul, uh, the Lord has sent me here. First of all, he calls him brother. This move of compassion has come across him as, he, as he's heading over to this house. The move of compassion comes to him, and, and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming, has sent me here that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, Ananias knows you are going to go through H-E double hockey sticks, buddy, because the Lord already told me you're going to suffer a whole bunch of stuff for the kingdom of God. One of my favorite verses in the scripture is in Colossians chapter 1. Would you turn there for Colossians 1, the very last verses of Colossians 1. And if we understand... That, that uh, Colossians 1, 29, 28 and 29. If, if we understand that this comes out of this life of Saul, we understand the theology a little bit more. It says, he's writing to the Colossian church, obviously. Verse 28 says, We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which is so powerfully work, which so powerfully works in me. So he says that there's this energy that's working on the inside. Then jump back up to verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, he's talking about Jesus, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. That's an amazing passage of scripture. Because the theology of that says, Saul of Tarsus is saying, the Lord told me I was going to have to learn suffering. Remember he says, oh, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. This is part and parcel of the theology of Paul so that he recognizes this is what it will take to be a good servant. I will have to learn to walk into the face of sufferings. Why? Well, because he's going to be arrested in Philippi and thrown in jail. Why? Because he's going to be shipwrecked on the way through Macedonia, and he's going to be launched out at sea. Why? Because he's going to be bitten, because he's going to be stoned, because he's going to be left for dead, because he's going to be treated, tried, people are going to try to kill him, because they knew this is what you will be. This, I'm calling you to what you're going to be. Now, you may not have to suffer the same way that Paul suffered, but you will still have to suffer for the kingdom of God because that's what 
That's what it is to be in the kingdom of God. You have to learn how to do it. And you have to be able to say willingly, I will walk straight into that suffering. Well, that's an exciting verse. Why do we want to claim that? Because this is what God is doing on the inside. The American church is wimpy. The American church has not learned to say, I will go follow Christ and suffer. Now, we haven't seen the resurrected Christ. So maybe if Christ appeared to us in his resurrection glory and, and his burning eyes looked right into our soul and he said, I will show you how much you must suffer for, in order for the kingdom of God to come, and then maybe we would be a little bit more like Saul. But nevertheless, we still have to have that same molding and making of ourselves, being made into this image of this servant. See, what, that's all that God is trying to do in our life, to make us servants. What God isn't trying to do is isn't trying to make you comfortable. You know, we call this a discipleship service. The reason why we call it is be, that be, is because we know we're supposed to be raising up disciples. But too often what we're trying to do is entertain one another for 40 minutes and then send us on to go eat some ice cream treats. But the reality of it is if we want to be somebody that makes hell tremble, if we're going to be real, if we're going to be real followers of Jesus, we've got to have a prayer life. We've got to be people who are dedicated to the Lord. We've got to be people who are willing to suffer. We've got to be people who are willing to say, this was my agenda before I knew you, Lord, but I'm willing to throw it away because, because it's all yours. You have me lock, stock, and barrel. Everything that you want from me, that's, that you have everything of mine. You can take everything. You can take my 401k. Oh boy. That will make us nervous. So to the man who was trained under Gamaliel, to the man who's steeped in theology, to the man who thinks that he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews, that he's righteous beyond compare, that there's nothing wrong with him, to the man who believes that, God moves Ananias, who knows nothing except Jesus and him crucified, and says, I want you to submit to Ananias' prayer. And Saul is blind, and Saul is pitiful, and Saul realizes that he's wrong, and Saul has fasted three days, and Saul is teachable. And that's another thing that we have to be. Oh, you don't understand, Pastor, I've been saved for 20 years. It doesn't really make a difference, because it's not about time, it's about maturity about whether you've gotten to the place where you can say, yes, Lord, I'll do that. Yes, Lord, is the most powerful response to prayer. See, the same Jesus that used Ananias is the same Jesus who wants to use you and I. The same power that flowed through Ananias on that day to Saul, that same power flows through you and I. If we'll get to the place where we throw away our agenda, where we're obedient to the things that God tells us to do, if we'll go after the things of God, if we're willing to put ourselves in a place of danger because the Lord said to do it, if we're willing to go after that. I'm not guaranteeing that you'll always come out alive. 
the person who said, a man is a fool to keep what he has never received. That person was killed. That missionary was killed. He got off the plane, he got out, and he went to greet this tribe that had never seen him before, and they killed him dead right there. Spent his life, spent his blood into the soil of that. Now that entire tribe has come to know Jesus as a result of that missionary's effort, but he's never spoke one word of the gospel to them. You have to be willing to be a servant that's going to be a servant of impact. You have to be willing to go after the things that God tells you to do, even if it costs you your life. I think I've said that enough tonight. And so you need to be humble, and you need to be teachable, and you need to bow before even somebody, Ananias, who's a know-nothing. We never hear from him ever again. Maybe this is the biggest thing that Ananias ever did in his life. It could be he died right after this. It could be, well, I don't know. He never did anything as far as we know that was Scripture-worthy. It was nothing. This is the one thing he did. He was obedient to God, and he went and he laid hands on Saul. If, if he hadn't have done it, Saul would be blind and starving to death. But he goes to him. He lays hands on him. He prays for him to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. He baptizes him with water. And as he's praying over him, it seems as though he sees scales fall from his eyes. Amazingly, the blindness of that of the God of this world that blinded the minds of the unbelievers, that those scales fall from his eyes. And Ananias sees that and testifies to that. And then they feed him, and he becomes rejuvenated. Powerful, powerful act of servanthood. Never, to, Hardly anybody ever recognizes what he did. But it's really the act that God is trying to bring us to the place of being that servant. You know, the scripture says, if you just go a little further than what we read, in verse 19 it says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All the theological truth that was wrapped up in his mind, all the revelation that had been given to him, was trapped in there because he had not bowed his knee to Jesus. Because he was not living as a full servant of the living Christ. In that moment, it seems as though suddenly it was uncorked. And it says, at once he began to preach. So it's a, he didn't go to Bible school. He didn't have to read a theology book. He didn't have to study the scriptures anymore. He already knew it all began to fall in place. Everything began to make sense. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And so, the whole, so when Ananias lays hands on him and he humbly receives in his teachable spirit whatever it is that Ananias has for him, and he's, he's, he sheds the blindness that's on him, he's suddenly the most powerful figure in the church. The scripture goes on to tell us that those same dudes that walked him into Damascus and probably told everybody, man, Saul was killing all these Christians, but now he's blind and we're just here traveling with Saul. Suddenly now they hear that he's preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. And those very same men from Jerusalem are trying to kill him before he gets out of Damascus. The story goes on. But 
our portion tonight is just this. God is making us into servants. And it could be that God is picking out someone that you need to minister the gospel to. He's already rearranging. See, when Ananias gets there, the the whole thing's all been worked out. All he has to do is step into the place and do what God told him to do. Could be that that's what God's doing for you. That he's already setting somebody up at work who's going to come to you and say, would you pray for my father-in-law? He's got cancer, and I don't know anybody else to ask. And that opportunity will come your way for you to say, let's pray together. Let's pray together. And then ask them, do you know how to pray? I don't know how to pray. Why don't you know how to pray? Are you a believer in Jesus? Well, I grew up in the church. Well, but I mean, there's a difference between standing in the, in the garage and being a car. You, just because you stand in the garage doesn't mean you're a car. And you begin to talk to them about what it means to truly be a Christian and to live as a Christian. And suddenly you find yourself ministering to, to people as a servant of the Lord. We don't like to do that because we want to be servants of ourselves. And God says, if we're going to be the people that, that turn the world around, that flip the world literally upside down, that's what the Scripture says. We are those who turn the world upside down. If we're going to be those kinds of people, we have to totally and completely sell out. Beginning of this year, we called this the year of consecration. A year where we totally concentrate ourselves, consecrate ourselves, and give ourselves over to full obedience to God. I pray that that's what God is doing in your life, because He is asking for more. Not more in the offering plate, more of you. That's what He's asking for. You say, well, what kind of a God is it that He's always asking for me? He's a very greedy and jealous God. He wants one. 100% of you. 100%. Well, that was pretty forthright and straight. I hope we hear that. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope you were blessed by it. If there's anything that we can do to help you further your relationship with God, we would love to be a part of it. You can contact us through our website, www.berwinag.org. Thank you, and God bless.